0: Section 17 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 9, Afghanistan, Part 1. A few miles across a stretch of gravelly river bottom, interspersed with scattering patches of cultivation, brings us to a hamlet of some twenty mud dwellings. The houses are small, circular structures, unattached, and each one removed some dozen paces from its neighbor. They are built of mud, with the roof flat, as in Asia Minor the sun is setting as we reach this little Harood hamlet and as galukoa is some three farsakhs distant we decide to remain here for the night we pitch our camp on a smooth threshing floor in the centre of the village and the headman brings pieces of carpet for me to recline on together with a sort of a carpet bolster for a pillow the khan impresses upon these simple-minded out-of-the-world people a due sense of my importance as the guest of his master the Amir of Seistan, and they skirmish around in the liveliest manner to provide what creature comforts their meagre resources are equal to. The best they can provide in the way of edibles is bread and eggs, and muscal, but they make full amends for the absence of variety by bestowing upon us a superabundance of what they have and no slaves of Oriental despot ever displayed more eager haste to anticipate their rulers' wants than do these, my first acquaintances, among the Afghan tillers of the soil, to wait upon us. All the evening long no female ventures anywhere near our alfresco quarters. The rigid exclusion of the female sex in this conservative Mohammedan territory forbids them making any visible show of interest in the affairs of men whatsoever when the hour arrives for the preparation of the evening meal closely shrouded figures flit hastily through the dusk from house to house bearing camel-thorn torches they are women who have been to their neighbours to obtain a light for their own fire from the number of these it is plainly evident that the housewives of the entire village light their fires from one original kindling The shrouds of the women are red and black plaid. The men wear overshirts of coarse white, material that reach to their knees, pointed shoes that turn up at the toes, white Turkish trousers, and the regulation Afghan turban. The night is most lovely, and frongs innumerable are in the lowlands round about us, croaking their appreciation of the mellow moonlight, the balmy air, and the overflowing waters of the river. For hours they favor us with a musical melange, embracing everything between the hoarse bass croak of the full-blown bullfrog to the tuneful purr of the little green tree-frogs ensconced in the clumps of dwarf willow hard by. Soothed by the music of the frogs, I spent a restful night beneath the blue, calm dome of the Afghan sky. Though awakened once or twice by the sowar's horses breaking loose and fighting, there are no geldings to speak of in central asia and unless eternal vigilance is maintained and the horses picketed very carefully a fight or two is sure to occur among them during the night as it seems impossible for semi-civilized people to exercise forethought in small matters of this kind a night without being disturbed by a horse-fight is a very rare occurrence when several are travelling together The morning opens as lovely as the close of evening yesterday. A sturdy villager carries me and the bicycle through the small tributary of the Harud. He shakes his head when I offer him a present. How strange that an imaginary boundary line between two countries should make so much difference in the people. One thinks of next to nothing but money. The other refuses to take it when offered. The sowars are in high glee at having escaped what seems to me the imaginary terrors of the passage across the Dasht-e-na-umid and as we ride along toward Galukua their exuberant animal spirits find expression in song few things are more harrowing and depressing to the unappreciative Ferengi ear than Persian sowars singing and three most unmelodious specimens of their kind at it all at once are something horrible. The country hereabouts is a level plain, extending eastward to the Fura Rood. Within the first few miles, adjacent to the Harud, are seen the crenellated walls of several villages and the crumbling ruins of as many more. Clumps of palm trees and fields of alfalfa and green young wheat environ the villages, and help to render the dull gray ruins picturesque the atmosphere seems phenomenally transparent and the trees and ruins and crenellated walls rising above the level plain are outlined clear and distinct against the sky in the distance at all points of the compass rocky mountains rise sheer from the dead level of the plain looking singularly like giant cliffs rising abruptly from the bed of some inland sea One of these may be thirty miles away, yet the wondrous clearness of the air renders apparent distances so deceptive that it looks not more than one-third the distance. It is a strikingly interesting country, and its inhabitants are a no less strikingly interesting people. A far sack from our Harut side camping place, we halt to obtain refreshments at a few rude tents pitched beneath the walls of a little village. The owners of the tents are busy milking their flocks of goats it is an animated scene no amount of handling nor years of human association seems capable of curbing the refractory and restless spirit of a goat the matronly dams that are being subjected to the milking process this morning have no doubt been milked regularly for years yet they have to be caught and held firmly by the horns by one person while another robs them of what they seem reluctant enough to give up the sun grows uncomfortably warm and myriads of flies buzz hungrily about our morning repast before we resume our journey a little damsel in flaming red skirt and big silver nose ring enters the garden and plucks several roses which he brings to me on a pewter salver these people are ilioutes and the women are less fearful of showing themselves than at the village where we pass the night several of them apply to me for medical assistance the chief trouble is chronic ophthalmia nearly all the children are afflicted with this disease and at the eyes of each poor helpless babe are a mass of hungry flies the wonder is not that ophthalmia runs amuck among these people but rather that any of the children escape total blindness several villages are passed through en route to Galacua. The people turn out en masse and indulge in uproarious demonstrations at the advent of the Ferengi and the bicycle. These people seem as incapable of controlling their emotions and their voices as so many wild animals. They shout and gesticulate excitedly and run about like people bereft of their senses. The uncivilization crops out of these obscure Harud villagers far plainer than it does in the tents of the wandering tribes they are noisier and more boisterous than the nomads who as a matter of fact are sober-sided and sedate in their deportment no women appear among the crowd on the street but a carefully covered head is occasionally caught peeping furtively from behind a chimney on the roof of a house or around some corner a glance from me and the head is withdrawn as rapidly as if one were taking hostile aim at it with a rifle Fine large irrigating ditches traverse this partially cultivable area, and in them are an abundance of fish. In one ditch I catch sight of a splendid specimen of the speckled trout, that must have been three feet long. Traveling leisurely next morning, we arrive at Galakua in the middle of the forenoon. Quarters are assigned us by Amimula Khan, the chief of the Galakua villages and tributary territory. In appearance, he is a typical Oriental official, his fluffy, sensuous countenance bearing traces of such excesses as voluptuous Easterns are wont to indulge in, and this morning he is suffering with an attack of tab fever. Wrapped in a heavy fur-lined overcoat, he is found seated on the front platform of an inenzel beneath the arched village gateway, smoking cigarettes. In his hand is a bouquet of roses, and numerous others are scattered about his feet. Dancing attendance upon him is a smart-looking little fellow in a sheepskin busby almost as bulky in proportion as his whole body, and which renders his appearance grotesque in the extreme. His keen black eyes sparkle brightly through the long wool of his remarkable headgear, the ends of which dangle over his eyes like an overgrown and wayward bang the bravery of his attire is measurably enhanced by a cavalry sword long enough and heavy enough for a six-foot dragoon a green cammerbund and top-boots of red leather this person stands by the side of Aminullah khan watches keenly everything that is being said and done receives orders from his master and transmits them to the various subordinates lounging about he looks the soul of honesty and watchfulness his appearance and demeanor naturally conjuring up reflections of faithful servitors about the persons of knights and nobles of old he is apparently the khan of galukoa's confidential retainer and general supervisor of affairs about his person and headquarters Our quarters are in the bala khana of a small, half-ruined konak outside the village, and shortly after retiring thither, the Khan's sprightly little retainer brings in tea and fried eggs, besides promaganets and roses for myself. A new departure makes its appearance in the shape of sugar sprinkled over the eggs. While we are discussing these refreshments, our attendant stands in the doorway and addresses the sowars at some length in Persian he is apparently delivering instructions received from his master whatever it is all about he delivers it with the air of an orator addressing an audience and he supplements his remarks with gestures that would do credit to a professional elocutionist he is as agreeable as he is picturesque he and i seem to fall on report at once as against the untrustworthiness of the remainder of our company as his keen honest eyes scrutinize the countenance of the sowars and then seek my own face i feel instinctively that he has sized my escort up correctly and that their innate rascality is as well revealed to him as if he had accompanied us across the desert several visitors drop in to pay their respects they salaam respectfully to me and greet the sowars as burrathers and kiss their hands One simple, unsophisticated mortal, who, in his isolated life, has never had the opportunity of discriminating between a Mussulman and Ferengi, addresses me also as Barathir, and favors my palm with the regulation osculatory greeting. The Afghans present view this extraordinary proceeding with dignified silence, and, if moved in any manner by the spectacle, manage to conceal their emotions beneath a stolid exterior. The risibilities of the sowars, however, are stirred to their deepest depths, and they nearly choke themselves in desperate efforts to keep from laughing outright. Offerings of roses are brought into our quarters by the various visitors, and boys and men toss others in through door and windows until our room is gratefully perfumed and roses are literally carpeting the floor one might well imagine the place to be gulistan itself every person is carrying bunches of roses in his hands smelling of them and wearing them in his turban and cammerbund the people seem to be fairly revelling in the delights of these choicest gems from flora's evidently overflowing storehouse the men average tall and handsome they look like veritable warrior priests in their flowing white costumes and they make a strange picture of mingled barbarism and aestheticism as they loaf in noisy magnificence about the tumble-down ruins of the konak toying with their roses in silence They seem contented and happy in their isolation from the great, busy outer world, and, impressed by their universal appreciation of a flower, it occurs to me, on the impulse of ocular evidence, that it would be the greatest pity to disturb and corrupt these people by attempting to thrust upon them our Western civilization. They seem far happier than a civilized community. The Khan obtains his receipt for my delivery. And, by and by, Amunullah Khan sends his man to request the favor of a Tomasha, leaving my other effects behind in charge of the sowars. I take the bicycle and favor him with a few turns in front of the village gate. Among the various contents of my leathern case is a bag of Kerans, but, although the case is not locked, it is provided with a peculiar fastening which I fondly imagine to be beyond the ingenuity of the Khan to open so that while well enough aware of that guileful individual's uncontrollable avarice in general and his deep dark designs on my money in particular i think little of leaving it with him for the few minutes i expect to be absent it strikes me as a trifle suspicious however upon discovering that while everybody else comes to see the tomasha all three of the sowars remain behind Instinctively, I arrive at the conclusion that, with these three worthy kleptomaniacs left alone in a room with some other person's portable property, something is pretty sure to happen to the property. So, excusing myself as quickly as courtesy will permit, I hasten back to our quarters. The mudbake is found posted at the outer gate of the Konak. He is keeping watch, while his delectable comrades search the package in which they sagaciously locate the silver lucre they so much covet. Seeing me approaching, he makes a trumpet of his hands and sings out warningly to his accomplices that I am coming back. Taking no more notice of him than usual, I pass inside and repair at once to the Balakana to find that the Khan and the Mirza have disappeared. The mudbake follows me in to watch my movements in the simplicity of his semi-civilized understanding he is wondering within himself whether or no i entertain suspicions of anything being wrong and he is watching me closely to find out in his dense ignorance he imagines the khan and the mirza artful almost beyond human comprehension and in thinking this he no doubt merely supplements the sentiments of these two wily individuals themselves time and again on the journey from Tabas has he joined them in chuckling with ghoulish glee over some self-laudatory exposition of their own deep, deep cunning. They well know themselves to be unfathomably cute beside the simple-hearted and honest riots and nomads with whom they are wont to compare themselves, and from these standards they confidently judge the world at large. The mud-bake colors up like a guilty schoolboy upon seeing me proceed without delay to examine the leathern case. The erstwhile orderly arranged contents are found tumbled about in dire confusion. My bag of about one hundred curans have dwindled nearly half that number as the result of being in their custody ten minutes. Some of you pedar sags have stolen my money. Who is it? Where's the Khan? I inquire, addressing the guilty-looking mudbake he is now shivering visibly with fright but makes a ludicrous effort to put a bold face on the matter and brazenly asks chand pool how much is missing kai lee where is the khan and the mirza i will take you all to aminullah khan and have you bastinadoed the poor mudbake turns pale at the bare suggestion of the bastinado and stoutly maintains his own innocence he would no doubt stoutly proclaim the guilt of his comrades if by so doing he could escape punishment himself nor is this so surprising when one reflects that either of these worthies would without a moment's hesitation perform the same office for him or for each other end of section seventeen recording by william tomco